I remember that they were supposed to have an interpreter that day with the appointment, but there was some type of mix-up, so there was no interpreter. So I had to be both daughter and interpreter that day. Um, and when the neurologist explained the, the diagnosis, and I remember looking at my mom and, and my dad, who was just looking at me to explain things, my heart just like fell to my stomach. I'm like, how? I don't even know the word for dementia in Vietnamese. You're listening to the podcast, Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. This episode marks our season finale, Lost and Found, stories about the people and the things we've lost and the journey to rebuild the broken pieces. And in case you missed the announcement, we recently reached 100,000 downloads of the show. It's an incredible milestone to have listeners from all over the world tune in and take part in preserving and sharing our Viet stories. This season has been one of my favorites to produce. I got to explore the different experiences of what it means to have lost someone or something you value. Whether it's the death of a parent or sibling, or your own identity and mental state. Each story has taught me that grief comes in many forms, but the journey to heal has many more twists and turns with no clear roadmap. In this episode, we explore the feeling of ambiguous grief, a range of emotions that can be more complicated than the type of grieving that comes with death. It is when a person in your life has changed so drastically that even though you see them and talk to them, you can no longer recognize them. You feel profound sadness as you try to hold on to the old memories of who that person used to be. So my mom is the eldest. She's the exact opposite of my dad. She's the eldest of... um, seven, she took the primary role of pretty much helping raise her siblings. So she's the caregiver versus my dad, who's used to being the one cared for. Um, And she, because she grew up in the city, I think that helped her to become very savvy and very tactful, um, very emotionally intelligent. Tay is the oldest of two girls. Her parents escaped Vietnam in 1979 later settling in Portland, Oregon, where she and her sister were born. Her mom named her Ante to mean bright poem. So I saw a different way of my parents and as well my sister, I think she asked more questions, so she probably knew more about their story. Phuong Nam is six years younger than her sister Tay. When she was born, her mom missed Vietnam so much she decided to name her Phuong Nam, which means path to the south. So my aunt took my mom to the hospital where I was born, and she was actually in the, you know, the other person in, in the hospital room with me. And when my mom named me, you know, Andy, you know, because she had someone at work that she that had the name Andy, and she thought that was a great name. And she always thought American names were really cool. Whereas my aunt was, you know, let's bring it back to 
Vietnam in our culture. And so she took, you know, my name, Andy, and just, you know, shortened it and gave me the name Ang, A-N, which means peacefulness um, in Vietnamese. So that's the connection we had right off the bat was that, you know, she was in the birthing room with me. Andy is their cousin. The three grew up very close to each other. Their families were like one unit. All three pursued in what they call a traditional child of immigrant path. They studied to work in the healthcare industry, eager to please their parents with a stable job. Tae is a clinical pharmacist, Phuong Nam is a clinical research coordinator, and Andy is a nurse practitioner. But all three are also artists and creators. Tae is a painter and illustrator. Andy is a writer and poet, and Phuong Nam has a passion for music and composing. In 2020, during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, Tay learns that her mom is diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, a disease that affects chemicals in the brain, creating changes and problems with thinking, movement, behavior, and moods. The type of progressive dementia that leads to a decline in reasoning and independent function and eventually losing memories and the skills that you once had. Her mom, who has always been the matriarch of the family, but since her diagnosis, the family is navigating what it means to take care of a woman who used to take care of everyone else. I know that my parents were boat people. Um, So they both grew up in Southern Vietnam. My mom, she she lived in Saigon, um, lived in a more wealthy uh, family than my dad. My dad, I don't remember the city he lived in. It was more of a countryside, and um, it was a lot poorer than my mom's family. And he was involved in the Vietnam War, fighting on the southern side. And after the Vietnam uh, fell, um, after the war, Saigon fell he went to the labor camp for a few years. Once he came home, he he knew that he wouldn't have any opportunities really. And if he had children, they probably wouldn't have much opportunity. And him and my mom had known each other for a good number of years by then. And so she provided him the gold that would be needed to secure a spot on the boat to leave Vietnam. And he told her, I'm, I'm not going to leave unless you come with me. Tay's father is one of five children and was raised by his mother after his father passed away when he was only one years old. In Vietnam, Tay's mother was studying to become a nurse, but her education was curtailed by having to take care of her younger siblings. Where did she get the gold and, you know, why does she determine that he should go first? I guess she didn't, she also, like my dad, did not see that he would have much way in terms of opportunity. And just, she said the change in the regime, the government was, they can feel, you know, that loss of freedom. Um, The change was really hard to take. So she talked with my grandma and her younger sister, the one closest in age to her, Um, who was able to access my grandparents' gold and snuck that to my dad. My grandpa had no idea. My dad would always tell me and my sister that if he had not escaped from Vietnam with my mom, my grandpa would never let him marry my mom because he was so poor. 
They arrived at a refugee camp in Malaysia before being sponsored by an uncle to move to New York City. During a medical check, her mom's imaging showed something wrong with her lungs, so she had to stay at the camp for further health investigations. Her dad left for America first. So when my dad left the refugee camp before her, her and my dad cried so much because they didn't know if they would ever see each other again. And, you know, they're both out in the in a country with knowing no one and knowing not knowing the language, not having money or anything. So it was very scary. Eventually, the two would be reunited in New York City. My uncle sponsored them to New York City and they lived there for less than a year. And they just found it so fast paced and probably so cold because they came. I remember my mom said they came in the winter and, and she arrived in like unprepared, like a t-shirt and like thin pants. And, it was so cold. <laughs> and after like less than a year, they're like, whoa, this is way too much. I have another aunt and uncle who live in Oregon. So my mom and dad and another uncle and aunt in New York decided to just hop in a car, pick up all their stuff and drive cross country straight to Oregon and just put, put their roots there instead. I find it so romantic that your parents left together because I mean, that must have been really scary for your mom, right? Because at that point, everybody in her family was still in Vietnam. Yes. Her siblings had not tried escaping yet. She was the first to, because she was the eldest, the first to try to escape. Yeah. Um, and she had a better situation than my dad. Um, you know, she was better off financially and she herself was not directly involved in the war. So she was not going to be penalized as much as my dad would have been. So it, I guess it was more of a, her giving up more to leave with him. Both Tay's dad and mom were the first to leave Vietnam among their family members, some of whom are still in Vietnam today. After a year in America, her parents got married. I remember my mom primarily did a lot of the disciplining and the teaching of, for my sister and me because my dad uh, worked a lot of hours. And I remember not being allowed to speak English at home when we were growing up. So the only way I learned English was watching PBS <laughs> on TV. And I ended up having to go to ESL because I, I didn't know English very well. Um, so that's one of the memories that kind of stand out for me. And one of the features, the things that my mom did that I'm so grateful now that she made me learn Vietnamese and not um, speak English when I was a child because I picked up English really quickly once I started going to school. I definitely uh, felt like we had a community there because my parents always took us to temple in Portland every weekend. My mom was pretty religious and so we always um, went to temple. I was in the uh, Buddhist Youth Association so we always did like um, New Year's and um, the Lunar New Year, different festivals. So we were always connected with the Vietnamese community growing up. And I think that's also what helped with the, my Vietnamese too. So my mom paid all the bills. She did all the negotiations. She she haggled in places that I don't think you can, you're supposed to haggle in, but she will try. She's an opportunist. Um, so yeah, she was not. she's not scared to speak out um, but the funny thing is, like I know in the Vietnamese and probably a lot of other Asian cultures, 
um, it's not common to show affection, especially in uh, verbally. Um, but my mom, even though she was a disciplinarian, she was very strict. She, for some reason, flipped that switch and was always very affectionate with me and my sister. She said, I love you to us all the time. I grew up hearing, I love you. I grew up um, with my mom hugging me and my sister. And I grew up seeing my, my dad put his arm around my mom. That's as far as they would go PDA wise in front of us. But um, being able to grow up in, in kind of a not as common um, display of affection in the immigrant home. We weren't a rich family, we weren't poor either, but I definitely remember we had everything we needed. My dad was always working and my mom worked part-time. My dad worked full-time. And I always remember that my mom was always there when she dropped me off to school, when she picked me up. They were always there when we needed them. And they were very loving. That's one thing I really noticed because a lot of Asian parents might not hug them. Um, kiss them, and our parents always did growing up. In January 2020, Tae Fung Nam and their cousin Andy published a book called The Day I Woke Up Different. It was years in the making. Growing up, my dad was, uh, he was a great father, like a very, very good father. And he was, he played pretty much the role of mom and father because my mom was not you know, she had her own, tra- now I can understand, but she had her own traumas where it prevented her from being like a motherly figure. Um, she was there physically, but wasn't really quite there emotionally, wasn't present, wasn't there like, uh, you know, mentally as well. My dad, you know, saw that. So he kind of took over the role. Growing up, I didn't really see too many books that reflected uh, the, um, you know, the culture, the people that I, I could identify with. It came to the point where I, you know, and now it's forward, in society, more stories were coming out and more diverse stories uh, of different cultures, different types of people. Um, but still, I didn't really find too many books that, you know, that really told the, you know, Vietnamese American um, story that I could identify with. One day I just, you know, had this, you know, idea of why don't I just write my story to start with? Um, because I, you know, I, I know my story best. Um, and so I started with that and I, I started to hit up people, people I knew, people who I were close with, people I grew up with, people who I had just met, who um, had this, you know, similar Asian American, uh, you know, immigrant uh, parents, um, just to see what their experiences were. And through that, I, you know, I saw a bunch of similarities. Um, and I also found, you know, my own unique stories that were just for myself. The book stems from his own experiences growing up in Portland. Andy had a vision to create a book for children of immigrant families who may also be struggling to fit in, to give them hope and positive reinforcement. Andy pulled his cousins into the vision. He wrote the story first and then asked T to illustrate it to life. And they also envisioned it being an audiobook. So Fung Nam, who was trained in piano, wrote the original compositions. The story is about a child raised in a Vietnamese household who begins noticing the differences between life inside the home and life outside in American society. The book is dedicated to the matriarch of their family, Andy's aunt, 
and the mother of T in Phuong Nam. My aunt, you know, she was, you know, the matriarch to our family. She absolutely was, you know, my second mom. I even told her that when I was, I remember when I was kind of going through that journey of like finding myself, figuring out my, my, you know, soul searching, I actually, you know, sat down and I told her, you know, Hey, like, you know, you have been my mom. Um, and sorry. Um, I still, I, I still remember that, 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 that moment, how, how touched she felt. And, uh, you know, I started, you know, you know, telling everyone I love them, expressing it, which was super uncommon in a Vietnamese family at the time. Like me and my aunt would always tell each other, like, you know, we love each other in Vietnamese, you know, to like, that's, that's like, the word we use. Um, we always end our conversations with that to each other. And so we're, we're very, very close. And, and I didn't realize this until I got older is like that a lot of her teachings, um, from even a kid, I carried on forward like meditation. I remember when she babysat me, she would just, Hey, sit, sit here on the, the carpet with me, take deep breaths. And I'm like her and I, while Fung Nan was sleeping in the crib and just take deep breath. I didn't know what we're doing, but I, I remember back like, Oh, she was teaching me how to meditate, teaching me mindfulness at, at an early age. And as I got older, I would go to her house every weekend to, for basically essentially Vietnamese school. She was our Vietnamese teacher with Funam and I, who teaches the language. Throughout my, our course of life, we were very, very, very close. And um, she'd always check in on me. She'd take care of my mom when I was, you know, traveling the world, basically going from city to city, countries. Well, at that time, you know, I had left and my sister had left too. Um, we were both kind of soul searching my aunt. I was like, no, I, I got this. Um, Andy, you do your thing. Um, I'll take care of, you know, your mom, look after her. And just, she did a lot, lot for us. In 2020, Tay noticed something was off about her mom. Before COVID, they spent a lot of time together as a family, but due to the pandemic, they couldn't see each other as often. As soon as we were all vaccinated, we started seeing them again, uh, uh, more often, more regularly. Um, but even when we weren't seeing each other, we were FaceTiming and on the phone a lot, and I didn't notice anything different um, until one day, a month after my mom got her second COVID vaccine, I was at her house talking with her, and she was just saying some strange things. Uh, she was saying, like, you know, I, I might, I've managed the finances all these years, and I was like, yes, I know you do, and. Now, if your dad looks at it now, he might not forgive me. And I was so confused. I'm, I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about, mom? Do you, do you have a second family? What's going on? And, and she's like, no, no, he's, he's just, he just might not forgive me. And it, she was just very not coherent and it didn't make sense. Um, but what was the thing that was the real red flag that same day, that same um, encounter was when I left the house as I was leaving and hugging my parents goodbye my mom whispered to me you know someone's watching us right and I was like no <laughs> what are you talking about she's like yep someone's watching us we're we're being videoed I told her okay show me and then I followed her back in the house and she grabbed her iPhone and she pointed to the camera icon I know that my mom's not technologically savvy so I just kind of like thought in my mind oh you know she's just forgetting but then in my mind I also knew she knows how to take photos so that's kind of strange so I told her oh no no mom that's the camera icon to take photos I tapped it and took a photo of the fridge in front of us and then my mom opened up the text message 
And she pointed to the camera icon in the text message. And she's like, no, no, there's there. And then I told her, no, mom, that, that takes pictures too. And then I was about to show her. And, she, and then she pointed to the little circle in the camera. And she's like, nope, there. And I just knew that something was very off just by her mannerism and what was going on. I just felt it in my bones that something was wrong. So that night I called my sister and I cried and I, I didn't know what was wrong with my mom. I was hoping it was something reversible. And we started noticing more and more symptoms. Like my sister has a toddler now um, and she's the only child between me and my sister. So my she's like my mom's little light. And I remember telling my mom, oh, we're gonna we're gonna visit Gemma, the my mom's granddaughter. And my mom just had like a blank face, like no emotion, which was so strange. Or she'll just have moments where she looks like she's not even there. Like her eyes are open, but there's no expression. And then I started picking up on things like, so with Louis by dementia, you lose what's called your executive memory. So that's memory um, that helps you function the day-to-day -day stuff so she she managed all the bills all my life and she suddenly couldn't understand how auto payments work or that when you pay a credit card statement that pays off that statement so i knew something was was wrong so i immediately contacted her primary care provider asked for a bunch of blood tests um she's a vegetarian so i asked for b12 i was hoping it was something reversible all the tests came back negative which um, you know, you want most of the time you want tests to be negative, but I was I wanted something reversible, something like an infection, something to explain it. And then we I asked for an MRI, I've asked for a neuroconsult, and then eventually she got the diagnosis from the neurologist and it all made sense. You remember the day when you found out? Um, I remember asking the neurologist if they had um, a, like a handout on Louis Ba dementia in Vietnamese to help explained to my parents and they didn't. Um, I remember that they were supposed to have an interpreter that day with the appointment, but there was some type of mix up. So there was no interpreter. So I had to be both daughter and interpreter that day. Um, and when the neurologist explained the, the diagnosis, and I remember looking at my mom and, and my dad who was just looking at me to explain things. My heart just like fell to my stomach. I'm like, how, I don't even know the word for dementia in Vietnamese. I only know the words to describe the symptoms like, um, like loss of memory or a condition of the mind. Um, and I use the word Alzheimer's like, cause they were familiar with Alzheimer's. So I was like, it's kind of like Alzheimer's. Um, but there wasn't a lot of support and resources for Vietnamese people, um, with dementia. And I remember when we walked out of the neurologist's office that day before we left the hospital, I remember looking at my mom and telling her, mom, what you have is called Louis by dementia. It happens and it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. My aunt started losing a lot of weight and I knew that wasn't a good sign. So, you know, it was a long course of like, you know, she was losing a lot of weight. She wasn't eating that well. And then one day my cousin just was like, hey, he has gotten an MRI of the head here's what it says. And when I saw it, my, my heart sank. I mean, I, I, I held it together because, um, you know, again, it's, you know, she's my aunt, you know, and I, I want to be sensitive to my cousins who that's their mom. And I want them to get, to give them the opportunity to, um, you know, have a, a safe space where they can share their feelings first. 
but man, I had a stone face, but in my, my heart of hearts, I was, uh, it was tough. But I, I knew when I, when I read that, um, that report, what it meant. So we do try to communicate with them as often and see them as often as we can. They're not ready to, um, move in with me because that's what initially my sister and I wanted them to do is move in. So that way, if they need help, they can, uh, will be available, but they're not yet ready yet. Cause I think they still want their independence. They're so used to living on their own. Like when they escaped over from Vietnam, uh, my parents never had to deal with living with their in-laws or anything like how back in the day it was a uh, normal to live in multi-generational home. So my parents have always wanted to also be on their own and not burden us when in reality we want them to live with us so that way we can help them. So I feel like over time uh, when she progresses, because unfortunately it's just no cure for this disease then we'll have them move in. And I definitely feel like as a daughter or especially a Vietnamese daughter, um, it's important that we take care of them. Um, cause we definitely, my sister and I have discussed about what the future is for them, how we can um, care give for them. And like, it would just be awful if we, were, if we were to ever put them in a nursing home. Uh, so it was just feel like that's definitely an Asian thing. I feel very obligated that I want to take, I do want to take care of them and have them live with us. How did your parents react? I think they had a hard time. I think my mom especially had a hard time accepting this new diagnosis. Mental health has a huge stigma and lack of understanding, especially in their generation in the Vietnamese culture. So I think that they had a hard time trying not to feel, my mom had a hard time not to feel shame about it or that it was somehow her fault. Um, and my dad, he's never been one to really talk about his feelings a lot. So I know, you know, it's his partner of so many years that he must be devastated, but he doesn't say anything. And he's just like, you know, I, I'm going to care for her. I try a lot to like give my dad space to like, do you, do you want to talk? How are you feeling? Are you feeling stressed? Just try to give him that opportunity. It was, it was very hard for my mom to, to accept it. Um, and especially feeling that she now is going to be a burden on my sister and me, even though we tell her over and over that it's not a burden at all. Um, that, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out as a family. And it reached a point where she attempted to take her own life because she did not want to be a burden to us. One day, T got a call from her dad saying her mom was shaking and vomiting uncontrollably. At first, her dad thought it was because her mom drank expired milk. She was very weak, vomiting repeatedly, and didn't have typical signs of a stroke. So I took her to the emergency room um, and then I again was playing the role of interpreter and daughter at the emergency room as they were, uh, the ER doctors was trying to assess my mom and trying to figure out what was causing her to vomit. And then um, before they were going to test her further, my mom tells me, and I'm interpreting everything my mom's saying to me to the ER doctor, we're just going back and forth. And my mom says to me, I'm gonna tell you what happened. And then I interpret that to the doctor. And then she said, I took medic medicine to try to kill me, kill my myself. 
And then I, my heart just kind of stopped. And then the, I remember the ER doctor looking at me to interpret what she had just said. And I remember repeating it in English and just <laughs> being in complete shock. Um, but then I went into kind of like a healthcare provider mode and just asked my mom, what did you take? When did you take it? How much did you take it? So we can kind of figure out, you know, what to look out for. They're going to call poison control. And, um, and then my mom, she, she was forthcoming. Um, but she also said she, she tried to take her own life because she did not want to burden my sister and me anymore. So she was admitted to the hospital for a few days. Um, she saw, she met with a psychiatrist to try to help her, but it was really hard because she was very resistant. She didn't want any medications. She blamed herself so much. She said, I used to be able to control my mind, but now my mind controls me. Um, and she told the, the psychiatrist, she didn't want medications she, that she loved my sister and, and me, and she would not do that again because she loved us so much. But we were trying to let her know she also did love us that morning when she took the medications. It's, you know, and it can happen again. Trying to figure out what kind of care she needs because um, she, uh, she's definitely gotten weaker. Her personality's kind of changed a bit. So how, like how we can help her and also my dad caregiving for her, like he gets tired, he gets stressed. So how we can help alleviate that for him. So just figuring out safety things in the house as well. So it's been challenging, but it's nice that we have like a good support system and we talk a lot to each other like and our cousins so that they can help support us emotionally as well, what we can do for our parents. But it's, it's definitely been hard. Because, like, I, we don't know anybody that has this disease, so it's not something we're familiar with at all. She has good days and bad days in terms of, like, her paranoia and depression and anxiety. She, whenever she leaves the house, she has this fear that um, someone will steal her house. Um, I do wonder if some of the trauma from her childhood is manifesting in her dementia. Um, because my grandpa had a few businesses and houses in Vietnam and um, the communist uh, government took away um, most of theirs. So she's felt that loss of property before, or she's always scared of my dad leaving. If my dad, my sister, or my dad, my mom go to visit my sister who lives in uh, Seattle, uh, my mom's always asking, is dad coming to and, you know, that the refugee camp my dad had left before my mom. So I, I do wonder if, like, she f is reliving some of that trauma or that fear that she had once felt. Yeah, in the past, she always made, like, the decisions for the family. My dad was more laid back, so he always, he went along with what she decided. Um, she always did, like, the finances. She took care of the family in Vietnam. She always, like, sends money. Like, she took care of everything in our house, essentially. And then when this disease happened, like, she pretty much couldn't make decisions anymore. Her clarity went away. She's gotten more paranoid, more anxious. And so her, pers her personality definitely dramatically changed. And then my dad ended up having to take over making decisions for my mom and helping my mom. So you definitely saw a reverse role of 
how they were in the past versus how they are now. How are you feeling? Um, I definitely have my, my good days and my bad days with grieving for my mom. And it's, it's a kind of a confusing grief. It's like an ambiguous grief because my mom is still there. She's physically in front of me. Um, but the parts of her that I've known all my life, some of those parts are gone. So I feel that loss. And so I, at the same time, I'm grieving for those parts of my mom while celebrating, you know, that she's still here physically with me and, and, and still in some ways, um, the mom that I know that's here with me. Um, so I've, I've had to learn to, to kind of lean into that grief and accept the grief rather than fight the grief. I think a lot of times, like we tend to not care for ourselves because we're caring for others. Yes. It's, it's so important to be able to also step back and care for yourself. But, you know, with all of that said, sometimes it's hard to find that space or time. And sometimes it feels selfish in a way. Yeah. I had a, I have a very beautiful soul told me, remind me once, um, what self-care is so that you give the world the best of yourself rather than the rest of yourself. So self-care is being selfless in a way so that you can give your loved ones the best of yourself rather than you're you're tired, you're anxious, you're impatient. Um, so two things that I've had to remind myself while I'm caring for my mom is my mom would and does want me to ha- be happy. So I do I do not have to be feel guilty to to find joy and to feel joy. I do need to take care of myself to be able to be strong enough to help care for my parents. So as of last fall, I, I saw, started seeing therapy. I joined a Louis by dementia group. Um, I let my family and my friends help me, whether that just be talking. And I pour my grief out and, and love out into the art that I paint um, and I write. I've always gravitated towards art since I was a little child. Fung Nam FaceTimes with her mom every day so her daughter can see her. They try to drive to Oregon from Washington State every month, and she hopes one day her mom can tell her story to her daughter. I definitely hope um, that my daughter will remember my mom, because I don't know uh, like how much time Honestly, I don't know how much time either one of my parents have since they're getting older, their health is deteriorating. So my goal is to make sure she sees them often, hears them often, and hopefully that they'll be around long enough that she will still remember them. Because she's, she's only, she's not even two yet. So I don't know when her memory will start, right? Because like some, I, I feel like the first time I remembered something, I was four. So I'm just hoping that we have time. That's what I would love for my daughter to hear from my mom, like her true story and be able to remember. I would just hope that she will be here long enough and her memory of her past will still be strong enough where she can tell her story to my daughter. My advice is definitely to ask for help. Definitely don't feel like you have to take it all on your own. You know, ask family, friends, 
whoever who can help support you, whether physically or emotionally or spiritually, to help you go through this journey. Because it's definitely you need a village. This is something you can't do alone. So don't be afraid to ask for help. This concludes our season five. To get more details on this episode, follow our Instagram page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode number 42. And a shout out to Trisha Vung, our associate producer on this episode. Until next time, stay well, be kind, and stay resilient. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.